Now, if you would please stand for the reading of Scripture, which will be coming uh, from Matthew chapter 5, if you care to look up in your Bible so you can follow along there. Also be on the overheads. Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. And this is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I hope everybody's doing well. If you've been with us, you know that we have been walking our way through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we get to one of, one of the most important things that a Christian has, has to know if we are going to know how to read and interpret our Bibles, and specifically our Old Testament. You know, the question that every Christian needs to be able to understand or be able to answer is how does Jesus, the coming of Jesus, affect our relationship with the Old Testament. So in the sermon, Jesus makes a lot of very bold claims. He, he, he draws a lot of his authority from Scripture, but he seems to go even beyond Scripture and, and say that his authority, it comes from someplace else. And he makes statements like, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. And that certainly would have turned a few heads. And then he begins to rebuke the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day for the way that they're interpreting and teaching the law. And, and certainly, and very understandably, people would have started to ask, so Jesus, are, are you opposed to the law? Are, are you saying that you're coming to change the law that we have followed as a Jewish people for thousands of years? And this question, it isn't something that went away in Jesus's day. It's something that the, the Christian church has had to wrestle with for 2,000 years. I mean, right in the beginning in the second century, there was a guy named Marcion and Marcion was adamant in his belief that Jesus came to start something totally new. So he wanted to do whatever he could to not just dismiss the Old Testament, but get rid of it. He, in his New Testament, he went through it and, and erased every single passage that in any way affirmed the Old Testament. And so obviously our passage this morning was included in, in, as one of those that Marcion erased. And so this debate has continued century after century, even into this modern age. Uh, last year, one of the most famous pastors in the United States, Andy Stanley, wrote a book, and in it, he stated how much modern Christianity relies too much on the Old Testament. And I want to be careful to quote him. In his words, he says, the problem with the modern church is, that our, is our incessant habit of reaching back into the Old Covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. Stanley then issues this call to church leaders. Would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? 
This is necessary, Stanley continues, because when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of this list. When people struggle to believe, the Old Testament is usually the culprit. So as Christians, how do we respond to this? Did did Jesus come Was he trying to start something totally new? Was he just trying to simply interpret to the Jews what it meant to be Jewish or was it something in between? And this is exactly what Jesus is answering in this passage. So I wanna look at this passage from three different angles. I wanna look at the Pharisees' relationship to the Old Testament. I wanna look at Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament and I wanna look at our relationship to the Old Testament. So hopefully it is very clear how Jesus' coming affects the way that we as Christians today, 2,000 years later, understand and interpret the Old Testament that we have in front of us. So first, the Pharisees' relationship to the Old Testament. To put it very bluntly, the Pharisees didn't understand it. And specifically, the the Old Testament Mosaic law. They did not understand how to interpret it. They didn't uh, understand how to apply it. And this is the reason that through the Sermon on the Mount, you hear Jesus say things like, you have heard that the law says this, but I tell you it says this. And so it can sound like, oh, Jesus is changing (laughs) the law here. But it's really important to understand Jesus is not saying the law says this, but I say this. And he's not saying the law was the old way and I usher in a new way. He's simply saying that the religious leaders of your day, they have misinterpreted the law. They've changed the law. They've added to the law. Now I'm here to bring the full weight of it back. I'm here to communicate to you what it really says, what it is always, the intention has always been for it to say to God's people. And so how is it then that the Pharisees had modified the law? They'd modified it to make it more manageable. They saw early on, this law is hard to keep. So so we need to add to it and, and modify it in ways that will make it accomplishable to us. You know, so they would ask questions like, when have we really committed adultery? You know, I always say, once, once we've gone to how far is too far, we've lost that battle. You know, or how, when is it really stealing? When is it, what really constitutes murder? And then most controversially in that day, when have we finally kept the Sabbath? So the Pharisees would add rules. They'd say, well, if you, if you just make sure you don't walk more than X number of steps on Sunday, and if you make sure not to get this far from your home, uh, and if you make sure to do these kind of works, but not these kind of works, then you've kept the Sabbath. And so they were trying to develop a law that was accomplishable, that was manageable. And then Jesus is coming in here and he's saying, you've missed it completely. Jesus is coming in here and he's raising the bar. He's saying to lust is to commit adultery. He's saying to covet is to steal. To be angry is to commit murder. And there was a saying back in Jesus's day and it went something like, if only two people get into the kingdom of God, if only two people get into heaven, surely it will be a Pharisee and a scribe. So how incendiary do you think it would have been for them to hear verse 20? Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Can you imagine how the Pharisees would have felt hearing that? I mean, that would have incensed the Pharisees because they have worked so hard to make this law accomplishable. They've worked so hard to do the law that they have developed. And Jesus is coming in here and saying, you've missed it by a long shot. It isn't nearly enough. Because the Pharisees, they wanted a law that dealt mainly with the external. And Jesus is coming in and saying, the law is about the internal. And you've completely missed it. And this is why 18 chapters later in Matthew, Jesus says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So at the end of the day, the Pharisees, they had a false understanding of the Old Testament because they had a false understanding of God. You know, they saw God as someone, someone whose rules you had to follow. And they felt the freedom to change those rules as it benefited them. And if, if there's a group of people that more better reflects our society today, I don't know who that is. Because as a society, we decide which laws we like. We decide which moral standard we want to abide to. And then we create this arbitrary system of trying to find out whether we've succeeded or not. And most commonly, you hear something like, well, if, if you do more good than bad, you're going to be okay at the end of this life. It's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. The law isn't supposed to make us feel better about our external actions. The law is supposed to make us feel worse about our hearts. So I'm sure some of you are familiar with the term Pavlov's dog. In the 1800s, there was a man named Ivan Pavlov. And he realized that every time he put food out for his dog, the, it, it would trigger the salivary glands in the dog. The dog would begin to produce saliva. And so he began to wonder, could I change the thing that triggers the saliva? And so for months, he would, every time the food would go out, he'd also ring a bell. Food would go out, he'd ring a bell. Food would go out, he'd ring a bell. And then after some months, they rang the bell, but no food. And what happened? The dog produced saliva. So he realized and had proven that external circumstances can change internal responses. And in the same way, this argument is Jim Boyce's argument, in the same way, that the bell, the introduction of the bell produced saliva, the introduction of the law should produce knowledge of sin. That's what the law is supposed to do. That's why Paul says to the Romans, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would, have not, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the problem with the Pharisees isn't that they thought too much of the law, it's that they thought too little of the law. They were trying to change the law to make themselves feel better about their actions, ignoring the whole time the true state of their heart. So that's the Pharisees' relationship to the Old Testament. Next, I want to look at Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. So you have the Pharisees screaming, I think, to Jesus, who are you to come in and, and abolish our holy law? To which Jesus responds in verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to, abol I have come to abolish, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is raising the standard and he's being accused of of changing the law. And he's looking at the Pharisees and saying, I'm not the one changing the law. You're the one who's changed it. I'm coming in here to restore the law. And he goes so far as to say, not one iota and not one dot will be changed. And so all scholars agree, Jesus didn't use the word iota because that's a Greek word. This, the, the, Jesus spoke Aramaic and Hebrew, but Matthew wrote the word iota because that was his way of contextualizing what it is that Jesus said to a Greek reading audience. But what Jesus is saying is that even the smallest parts of the Hebrew letters that, that make up the Mosaic law and the entirety of the Old Testament, not even the smallest letters will be changed. And likely he had in, in his mind a yod and a seraph. So a yod is like a, a little comma. If you've studied Hebrew, you know what I'm talking about. And there's something like 66,000 yods in the Old Testament. And then he's saying not a single one of these will be removed. Not a single one of these will be abolished. And then if you... So if, if you're a font nerd, you know, I know that font nerds exist. I will never understand you. I will still love you. I don't get it, but you have an advantage here. You know what the serif font is and the sans serif font. So a serif font has like a little dot at the bottom that creates this little foot, right? And the sans serif, because sans means without, it doesn't have that little dot that creates the foot. And in English, it's no big deal because that little dot doesn't do anything. But in Hebrew, that little dot could change the whole meaning of a letter. And so Jesus is saying, not one of these yodes, not one of these dots is going to be removed. You've changed the law, but I'm here to enforce the full weight of it. And I can imagine somebody saying, okay, Jim, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what Jesus is saying, but we don't go by the sacrificial system anymore. I, I mean, I, we eat shellfish like good Floridians should. We don't purify ourselves before church. So I hear Jesus saying he didn't abolish the law, but it sure seems like he abolished the law. And if that's you, I want to tell you, Jesus didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it, all right? And there's a big difference between the two. Jesus saying, I'm fulfilling it. So in what way did Jesus fulfill the law? And if you hear nothing else in this time, in this sermon, I want you to hear this. When the law came, it brought with it legal demands over our souls. And because we did not fulfill those legal demands, now there is a debt that has to be paid for our souls because we have failed the law. And Jesus fulfills the law by paying that legal debt for us. So Jesus, who was the only person who ever fulfilled the whole law, who never sinned, he went to the cross and took on the curse, the penalty that was due all of us because we did fail the law. Jesus fulfilled the law by paying our debt to the law. That's what it means. And when Jesus did this, what's called the ceremonial system, the whole ceremonial law, all the sacrificial system was fulfilled. This is why Paul says that, referring to the sacrificial system, that these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So if you can imagine, it's, it's kind of a dreary day out there, but imagine it was a bright sunny day and I've got this window behind me and all of a sudden there was this large shadow cast on that window we would all know that there's some substance out there casting 
that shadow, right? We may not know what it is, but we know it's there. And that's what Paul is saying about the whole sacrificial system. The system is the shadow, and it's pointing to the substance, which is who? Jesus. So the sacrificial system ultimately points to Jesus, and this is why the author of Hebrews says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Old Testament believers, they weren't saved by the sacrifice itself. Old Testament believers were saved because of their faith in a sacrifice that, Jesus, that God would one day provide, even if they didn't know it was Jesus. In the same way, we're saved as New Testament believers by looking back at the sacrifice that, that God did provide in Jesus Christ. And so we see that Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law and all the sacrificial systems because he, he completed them, he fulfilled them. And in the same way, you have the civil law, all the Jewish national laws. When Jesus came, he expanded the covenant to include every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So the Jewish national laws, they are no longer on us. We're not obliged to them in the way that an Old Testament believer would have been. So when Jesus came, you can see he's not changing anything. There's a big difference between abolishing a law and fulfilling the law. You could say the only thing that Jesus added to the law was that he kept it for the very first time. John Calvin said it was only the use of those laws that was abolished for their meaning was more fully confirmed. So can you see what Jesus is saying when he says, I have not come to abolish this law, I've come to fulfill this law. But I want you to see one other thing too. I want you to see that Jesus isn't just fulfilling the Mosaic law. He in some way fulfills all the prophets as well. And so when, when, an old, when a person at that time would have said the law and the prophets, they are referring to the entirety of what we call the Old Testament. This group of books that points toward the coming of the Messiah, that predicts in many ways who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, what he would do. And Jesus fulfills every single one of these laws and these prophecies. And what we're seeing is that the whole Old Testament, it's essentially about Jesus. All of the Old Testament are signposts pointing to Jesus. And Jesus says as much in Luke 24, after he was crucified, he came back and he was walking with two of his disciples, explaining to them every place in the Old Testament that was really talking about Jesus. Luke records it like this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, to, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And I know lots of people who have said, man, all right, Luke, it would have been really helpful if you would have included that whole discussion. <laughs> It'd be really nice if you would have shown us Genesis to Malachi, where Jesus was. And I really think that that has happened in the entirety of the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament, they understood what happened in there. And I think we're seeing, especially in places like Romans and Hebrews, all those places in the Old Testament where it's really talking about Jesus. And it's important we understand this. Have you ever wondered, why is it that God waited so long to send Jesus? I mean, it, it can be an easy question to not, we, we may be thinking, why is God waiting so long to send Jesus back? <laughs> but why did he wait so long to send Jesus in the first place? You know, why didn't he go ahead and send Jesus on 
in Genesis 3. <laughs> you know, why didn't he send Jesus instead of Abraham or Jesus instead of Moses or Jesus instead of David? And the answer is because we needed categories to understand who Jesus is and what he would do for us. And so there are lots of categories we needed to understand, but let me just give you one example. The high priest, all right? The role of the high priest in the Old Testament was to be an intercessor between God's people and God, an intercessor between sinful people and a holy and perfect God. But there's one problem with the high priest. He's sinful too. So you have this sinful person that is supposed to intercede between party one, the people of God, and because he's sinful, he can't completely sympathize with his people. He's prone to jealousy in them and vengeance towards them and insecurity and anger. So he's not, he can't perfectly sympathize with us. And then party two, a holy and perfect God, this high priest can't just approach God as if nothing's wrong with him. In fact, every year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, where where the presence of God dwelled, where God's meeting place with man on this earth existed. And some of the high priests were so nervous about going in and approaching a holy and perfect God that they would have a rope tied to their foot so that if they died just from being in the presence of God, their body could at least be retrieved. I mean, some intercessor, right? Right? But after century and century of seeing the failings and the shortcomings of these sinful high priests, we, we begin to understand our need for a perfect high priest. We begin to understand what Jesus, our perfect high priest, does, who he is, why we need him. And the same thing happens with the temple. The same thing happens with understanding Jesus, our Passover lamb, as our sacrifice, We understand that we have a king who's greater than King David and he's over a kingdom that's more vast and more impressive and expansive than even that of King Solomon. We would not understand all of who Jesus is and what he's here to do if we didn't have all these categories that are developed over the course of the Old Testament. So what is Jesus's relationship to the Old Testament? It's the same as a sign's relationship to its destination or a treasure maps to a treasure. The Old Testament, it points to Jesus. That's the role of the Old Testament. And so the last question that we have to ask is, in light of that, what is our relationship to the Old Testament as a believer 2,000 years after Jesus has resurrected? Well, that answer depends on if you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not. If you're not, your relationship to the Old Testament is that of a debtor with a debt yet to be paid. And if you're not a believer, you you, you probably look at the Old Testament as many of my, my friends do and they, you know, at best think there's some good moral stories and some history to be gleaned at worst. Just think it's kind of silly. And if that's you, I wanna share a story with you from the great... 18th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, 19th century, excuse me. One day he was in a, con- in a conversation with a man down by the docks. And Spurgeon said to the man, do you, my friend, have a good hope that if you die, God will accept you? The dock worker said, I do. I think I'm as good as most folks I know. Well, Spurgeon said, my friend, my friend, I'm scared. I'm concerned for you. Is that the best you have to rely on? The dock worker said, well, I'm also very charitable to the needy. Spurgeon said, 
Well, but you've sinned in your life, haven't you? Yes, said the dock worker, many times. Well, what have you to rely on that gives you hopes of being forgiven? Well, the dock worker said, I'm very sorry for my sins. I've stopped many of them. Spurgeon said, now, my friend, suppose you get into debt with a grocer who you've dealt with and you cannot pay. Can you say to your grocer, now, look, ma'am, I'm, I'm very sorry. I can't pay for all these goods I owe you. But I tell you what, I'm sorry for that debt. I promise I'll never get into debt anymore. Would she accept that? Well, the dock worker said, of, of course she won't accept that. Spurgeon said, well, if she would not accept that and she would not make your debt good on the basis of that very kind statement, do you suppose you can treat the great God of this universe in, the, in that way when, she would, when you would never even treat your gr- grocer this way? Well, the dock worker said, what can I do? And then Spurgeon said, then I told him as plainly as I could how the Lord Jesus had taken the place of his of sinners and how those who trusted in him and rested on his blood and righteousness would find pardon and peace. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, my hope is that you will see that the law has great indictments on a heart. It has a debt that has to be paid, but Jesus has come to pay that debt. And if you're this, here this morning and you're a believer, you, know, you look at the Old Testament and you likely are looking at it through very different eyes. You don't just see stories, you see Jesus. And, and if that's you, I wanna finish by, by throwing out three implications. If we're going to be believers who look at the Old Testament and see Jesus, the first implication is that we're, we're gonna have a high view of the Old Testament, If we believe that the Old Testament prepares the way for Jesus, gives us categories to understand Jesus, that it anticipates Jesus, then we're gonna read the Old Testament. We're gonna value the Old Testament. We're gonna study the Old Testament. We'll we'll teach the Old Testament in church. Lord willing, when we finish this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we're gonna walk through the book of Joshua. Angela and I have uh, a dear, dear friend. She has since passed. She was an an old lady and and a devout uh, Roman Catholic, and I asked her one day, so what, what would, how would you describe the difference between what you believe and what I believe? And she said, well, I believe the whole Bible. And I said, okay, explain that to me. She said, well, I see you Protestants, you know, walking around handing out your New Testaments. I believe in both Testaments. It's like, all right. Her observation was well taken. If we have a proper understanding of our relationship to the Old Testament, we're gonna have a high view of the Old Testament. I think maybe think about it this way. Do you have a book that you love? In, a, in this age of Netflix, I think the, the chances of, the, the percentage of you is lowering <laughs> to have a book that you love so much that you would maybe read it over and over again, two, three, four times. And if you have that kind of book, when you go back and you read that book, do you, the second, third, fourth time, do you just, do you just read the, the last 25% or do you start at the beginning? You start at the beginning because when you go back to the beginning, you, you get to feel the anticipation all over. You get to see things that either you'd forgotten or things that you'd missed the first time around because you know the end of the story this time. And then when you get to the end of the story, it's sweeter the second time. It's more significant the second time. This is the way that we, we need to approach the Old Testament <laughs> because at the end of the day, the Bible is one story. It's one story about Jesus. 
And so it's a little bit odd if we're going to spend all of our time in, in the last 25%, right? <laughs> and, and ignore all the 75% that leads up to Jesus that helps us to understand who Jesus is and what he would do. And, and I just, I, I've talked with enough people who would hear Jesus in the Old Testament and just not understand what exactly I'm talking about. So I wanna give you one example. There are hundreds that I could use, but let me give you one example and I'm picking it because I'm gonna go almost as far to the beginning as I can go. Genesis three, Jesus is in Genesis three. Adam and Eve have just sinned against God. God comes into the garden and he curses the serpent who had influenced their fall. And God says this, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And here it is. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see Jesus in chapter three of the whole Bible? God cursing the serpent is saying one day you're gonna bruise her offspring, Jesus' heel, and that you're going to influence his going to the cross. But he is going to come back from the grave and he is going to crush your head. That's where this story is going. And it's sweeter when you read it again, knowing where the story is going. And so we should want to be in the parts of the Bible that develop Jesus and anticipate Jesus and lead to Jesus. So that's one. We'll have a high view of the Old Testament. Second, we'll have a proper under, if we have a proper understanding of the Old Testament, we're going to have a high value for the moral law. I wanna be really clear here because I've talked about the ceremonial law, the whole sacrificial and priestly system. I've talked about the civil law, the Jewish uh, national rights. Now I'm talking about the moral law and I would define the moral law as the ethical standards of the kingdom of God. All right, and so yes, it's been fulfilled in that the debt has been removed from us, but the moral law still exists. It still exists not in a condemning way, but in a life-giving way. The moral law is the, the ethical standards of the kingdom we now live in. And according to Jesus, the more we abide by that law, the greater in his kingdom we are. John Stott says that the great, greatness in the kingdom is measured by conformity to it. And this is what Jesus is saying in verse 19. Therefore, whoever lacks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so we, we can have this idea that all, all sins are the same. There's no difference in any of the sins. And so from one angle, yes, whatever the sin is, it will cause a separation between man and a holy God. But in, in Jesus's kingdom, there are some that are worse. There are some that have greater consequences. We see that all through the development of, of the Old Testament. Some sins had greater consequences. But what Jesus is saying here is even the least of the law, the least important things, the most great issues. We're called to embody and to keep if we're a part of this new kingdom that is coming to earth. So as Christians, we should be the most trustworthy. We should be the most reliable. We should be the most honest. Then I wanna give you just one example 
of how we see this playing out on a national scale. Chuck prayed for this this morning. We didn't coordinate this. But New York took a major step forward in circumventing the laws of the United States to allow babies to be terminated up to the day of birth. You look at the moral law in the Old Testament and you see a very high value of life. You see actually laws that preserve unborn life. So we see this in the moral law of the Old Testament, that that which still carries forward. And you, you see that God cares about the most vulnerable of people. And so as Christians, we should be the biggest supporters of these unborn babies. And as Christians, we should care about all types of vulnerable people in our society. And it doesn't end at birth. We should care that people are born in places and with a skin color that will cause them not to succeed in this world. And it's funny, I know when I take the jump from abortion to race, people are thinking, now you're getting political, Jim. I'm not getting political. This isn't politics, it's kingdom ethics. All of which are supported in the moral law of the Old Testament. So we'll have a high view of the Old Testament. We will have a high view of the moral law. And then lastly, we will have a high regard for that which is yet to be accomplished. Did you notice that Jesus says, not an iota or dot will pass from the law until, until all is accomplished. So we live in light of a kingdom that is going to come. We live, we're not living in a light of a kingdom that might come, that might come to pass. We're hoping, we're living in the sureness of a kingdom that will come. And in this kingdom, there will be no more loneliness, no more anxiety, no more depression. None of us will hate our jobs. And in this kingdom, there will be no need of a written law because it will be written on our hearts. And in this kingdom, there will be no need to be reminded externally of the requirements of the ethics of the kingdom of God because we will have no sin. In the kingdom of God, in the kingdom that's yet to come, that's yet to fully be established, we get to live with our God in perfect peace, in perfect justice, in perfect love forever. And so if we believe that, if we have a high regard for that, we're gonna be okay being wronged. We're gonna be okay being misunderstood. We're gonna be okay being in pain because we know what's coming. And so as I finish, I don't wanna be too harsh on Andy Stanley, all right? I, I do think there are some, some significant contributions that he has made to the kingdom in his ministry. But I think at the end of the day, Andy Stanley is making the same mistakes that the Pharisees are. They don't understand the role of, their Old Test of the Old Testament, so they're minimizing the Old Testament. And they minimize it in different ways. The, the Pharisees are adding to it, and Andy Stanley's trying to throw it out. But in both cases, they're minimizing the law. And I don't think they mean to, but the reality is when you minimize the law, you minimize God, and that's a big deal. And so my hope for us this morning is that we would see this passage and that we would make much of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. And in doing so, we would make much of God. Let's pray. God, we are thankful 
as Martin Luther said, we are, we are in a sinful world, unable to hear your voice. It isn't that you don't speak to us. You speak all the time, but we can't hear you. So to overcome our inability to hear, you have given us your word in written form that we can see, that we can read, that we can understand. And I pray that this morning, we would all, every single one of us, especially me, have a higher regard of every piece of your law, every piece of your word, every iota and dot, every jot and tittle. God, that we might be conformed more into the image of your son and experience the blessing of being great in your kingdom. We thank you and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.